Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. In this episode, we caught up with Scott Gooding, who's a fantastic chef, a personal trainer, all-round health expert, and entrepreneur. I first met Scott through his wife, Matilda, who I shared an incredible experience with in 2018 on Heron Island with a bunch of other amazing change makers. Scott really struck me in his passion for health, his passion for food, and increasingly his passion for sustainability. Now, it was an interesting podcast in that we were sharing a mutual exchange. I was being interviewed for Scott on his The Good Podcast, and he was, of course, on this one. And it was also a pretty wild day, lots of rain and extreme wind this day. So apologies if the audio uh, is a little distracting. But I hope you like this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. If you like it, please share it around and leave a review. Thanks for listening. Tim, uh, I don't know who's welcoming who on whose podcast here. We're welcoming each other. Here we are. Um, just to give some context around that, I, I've got a, I think I even told you prior to recording the last interview that my track record for getting this right is pretty poor. My mm. success rate is probably about 80%, and sadly you were... One of the 20%? <laughs> one, of, one of the 80%. One of the 80%. My, my success rate for fucking it up. Oh, is dear. Right, yeah. okay. Hence, um, I, yeah, I, the recording, anyway, I've learned the hard, way, the hard way, and I've got myself a little gizmo here that kind of circumvents a lot of technology and software. And, and so it transpires that you want to interview me on your podcast. And yep. I thought, well, let's... Hopefully my success rate's better than yours. Well, yeah, you can't... You can't um, <laughs> I'll be surprised if it's not. Um, so hence, we're going to attempt to be each other's guests on each other's podcasts, right? Yeah, I think it's about collaboration, right? Yeah, right. So, Streamlining. And efficiency. Streamlining. Streamlining, exactly right. So, so welcome wherever your, you're coming from. Is this your first... Am no, I'm about, um, about four or five in now, so no. definitely haven't released yet, but we're just filling up the bank of, of interviewees. Yeah, right. It's called the Ocean Impact Organisation Podcast, so it's all about the new venture that I'm launching after 10 years working on a charity focused on protecting the oceans. I'm now looking at how business for good can help the oceans. Yeah, right. So you as a fantastic, inspiring figure of entrepreneurship and oh, leadership... No, no, no. Um, that's why I wanted to talk to you. Yeah, right. Why do you want to talk to me? Because uh, I felt so bad for, for fucking up the first one. But <laughs> no, I, th- I think what you are doing and what you've done in that environmental space needs needs to be sung about, needs yeah. to be um, shouted out from the rooftops. So if we can if we can backtrack a little bit, because um, I do want to talk about your new venture. Yep. But if we can talk about um, where you've been for the last, what was it, 10 years? At, Take yeah. food for the sea. Yeah. Maybe even a step further historically. So, um, I guess, how did you, have you always been conscious of the environment or was there a specific moment in time or an yeah. event that kind of pricked your ears up? Yeah, I think I always have been. I think it sort of was passed down from my elders around me and it was also very much based on the environment that I found myself growing up in. So from the age of about eight, my folks purchased this 25 acres of pretty raw Australian bush, and that was gonna become the 
Australian dream of building your own house right. and, and raising the family. Where, so where was this? This is at Arimba on the New South Wales Central Coast. Oh, yeah. So it's about an hour and a half outside of Sydney. Um, and yeah, that was probably my, my greatest muse was being in the environment, seeing that I was so much, um, I was so insignificant in the context of the greater ecosystem around me. And so that was very easy to then translate that across to the ocean when I started going and surfing with my mates when I was you know, in my early you know, 10, 11, and obviously all throughout my teenage years. Mm. So, so even at that young age, you've got this sort of perspective of the world, the environment, ecology, and that you're just a tiny part of all that. That's pretty... That's it. That's, I don't think I'm even there yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, I guess, the, the thing, right? Because... If um, you know, you can definitely learn that throughout life, and thankfully a lot of people are, and people are coming across to that. But I think there's probably a lot of people out there, and those people that it was never, it was a non-negotiable that they were going to work in some sort of role that would try to be regenerative and restorative because it is so a part of them. So I guess I'm one of those. Yeah, right. What about you? I mean, obviously you didn't, um, you know, tell us about where you grew up and your relationship oh, probably, with environment sustainability. Probably very, very different. Um, I grew up in, in London. My mum and dad ran pubs in and around London for 40 years, really sort of food-focused pubs, which has obviously influenced, I think, the path that I've now gone in. Um, I guess I've been, you know, I've always been very uh, appreciative of nature. I'm a bit of a nature nerd. Um, but I guess, you know, it's funny, we went to a, a march in the city a few weeks back for, um, you know, the global crisis. And I remember going to those, like, 10 years previous, 12 years previous. Uh, I remember writing essays at the A-level level, sort of just after school, about um, greenhouse gas. And so I think it's... I mean, I, I don't want to put my hand up and say that I'm a... You know, no, nowhere near sort of an activist, uh, or I don't know whether I'm an environmentalist, but I'm, I'm very aware of what's going on. Um, I'm learning that through various people that I'm speaking to, and, and you're one of them, that um, as an individual, you can make a change. I think we get disarmed and we get sort of um, discouraged because we think of this global topic as an insurmountable hurdle. And what can I, little I, you know, what, what can I do as an individual? But I'm learning, um, as I say, from, from people like yourself. Uh, I, I met Natalie Isaacs a few, few uh, weeks ago, and she gave this really empowering talk about it does come right back down to the individual and the, the small actions and the small behaviours that you can make on a day-to-day. -day. If, if enough of us are doing that, the yeah. collective becomes so strong. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know whether I'm an environmentalist, but I guess, I, I guess it's it's now perhaps revealing itself in the businesses that I'm involved with and the decisions we make as a business or decisions I make as a as a brand. Although I like that term, but there are environmental decisions that kind of underpin the direction that the business takes. Yeah, um, so I can't remember what the question was or whether I answered it, but yeah, well, I think um, you know to your point about take three and you know, that messaging around individual actions really do 
make a difference. The important part that you raised there, in which um, it really hits its stride, is that it needs to be multiplied by millions and billions. Yeah. And that's why, for me, like Take Three is a success because we know so many people have adopted the action, and that's great. That's tangible. That's plastic being removed from the environment one handful or one bag at a time. But more important for me is that behaviour change and how that then becomes this impact on everyone's sphere of influence. So you can actually then be representative of the kind of change that we need to see on such a broad, such a big scale. So where I'm at now, I suppose, is sort of giving Take Three a, a round of applause for what it's been able to do and inspiring people. But my gosh, we need more than just inspired people out there. We need the solutions to actually transform the status quo. I'm calling a lot of this business as unusual because we wouldn't be in the predicament that we're in right now were it not for the impact of consumers and consumers driving this business as usual, which we hear Mm. so much about now, Mm. not really serving us in that way. So Mm. where I'm sort of coming at this new venture, which is all about um, finding entrepreneurs and innovators and leaders who've actually got ideas that can radically improve the impact that we're having on people on the planet, why wouldn't we be giving them all the tools Mm. to make them a success or make them fail if they're meant to fail, Mm. but do it quickly because we just don't Mm. have the luxury Mm. of time. Is there a a pool of money that comes from government to incentivise those businesses or does that not exist? There should be. Um, We talk a lot about innovation and so all the government departments that are focused on industry and development, of course they're investing in trying to put Australia on the back, on the on the map and support the transition away from polluting industries to better industries. It could be so much bigger. Um, as a new startup ourselves, it's not like there's a pipeline of funding sort of streaming into us to help us. So we've had to go out to philanthropists and donors to say, hey, we've got a great idea. Um, we think it's going to help to transform the landscape, not just in terms of how we can regenerate and make a positive impact on the ocean, but it's also going to transform the way we invest because mm. people out there are investing all the time and maybe not giving enough consideration to what the impact of that investment actually is. Mm. So we talk about impact investing and people wanting to shift their money across to where it does good things, but that space should just be huge. And you fit right in that space as well, right, through obviously everything you're doing on health and wellness, but also in, um, in how people's behaviours in relation to food can have a positive impact on the planet. Yeah. So yeah. where are you at with that? Is that is you spoke a little bit about that being a part of your journey. Like, where's your head? Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of gone. I, I got asked this the other day, and you know, in until you sort of have that forty thousand foot approach on what what you what you do and where you've come from, it's it's you, you kind of think that nothing's evolved and nothing's changed. But I guess where I'm at now is, you know, I've just released another book called The Sustainable Diet. And that's really looking at the provenance of our food uh, and how there are, you know, a number of food systems currently across the industrialised world, uh, but there's two that are prominent. One's the the conventional food system, the intensive food system, uh, and the other is the sustainable or the regen. And so the book is sort of putting that under the microscope and saying, okay, why does it matter where we get our food from? Um, why is it important? Um, what are the implications and the ramifications from a health perspective, for human health, environmental health, and animal welfare? Um, 
And so it's it's exploring all that, putting that under the microscope, but also these are the steps that we can all take to kind of make more informed decisions. Because I've, I've just, there's lots of these, I guess the impetus for the book was, and you've probably seen them, many of us have, these sort of hard-hitting, provocative Netflix documentaries that shine a light on um, livestock production. And they're pretty vile, there's pretty vile footage. Yep. You know, treatment of, of, of animal, not not just in its death, but in its in its life cycle. Yeah. You know, they're they're eating food that are not not um, naturally designed to eat. They're not allowed to roam in pastures, blah blah blah. And so, what that's done as a consequence, that sort of produced this widespread knee-jerk reaction. Right, I need to, for the sake of animal welfare, for the sake of the planet. Yeah, the environment, ecology. I need to give up meat. But what that, what those documentaries fail to do is shine a light on the whole industry. It shines a light on a particular example. And granted, it's a grotesque um, version of farming. But there is a version that has consideration for animal welfare, animal husbandry, the soil. Uh, you know, the, the ecology, the environment that the, the, the farm sits in. Yeah. And so I guess I wanted to be a voice for that side of the coin, that version of farming. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's quite interesting how how your message evolves. You know, if you'd asked me five years ago if I'd be flying the flag for regen farming, I'd find that quite, you know, it probably wouldn't surprise me, but it would be... You know, I'd be a bit quizzical around it, but um, because because I wholeheartedly believe that's that's the way forward in terms of all those sort of facets that I mentioned: the human health, environmental health, and animal welfare. That we need to be supporting and advocating that type of um, food provenance. It's so common sense, right? When you look at it that way, it's not about saying no; it's about saying let's do things better. So, how much of this opportunity, and obviously writing a book and the aim of that book to, to get out there and see as many people as possible. How much of that is, you know, your personal journey and personal development, and how much is also finger on the pulse? The community's oh. out there ready for it now. They were they might not have been ready for that book. Oh, I think a lot ago. of it. Well, I, well, according to my publisher, they're not ready for it yet either. <laughs> um, I think it's we were talking we're about this. Pioneer. Like, yeah, on my own, just <laughs> just but, use God. Is everyone? Uh, I do feel like a lot of it's my own personal journey. I've always talked about the importance of eating natural foods. Bundled in with that is like in, we, we need to ask that second tier question as to where our foods come from. Yeah. I do think that more people are talking about food sovereignty and the importance of supporting regen farmers and... I do think that it's a growing conversation. Whether we've got to the point where it's critical mass yet, I don't know. Um, my mother-in-law is making a, uh, a documentary about the very subject. So she's going out across New South Wales and Victoria asking, well, interviewing farmers. So there are, naturally there's farmers um, engaged in those sort of principles of farming. Mm. But the disconnect, and, th and there's plenty of those. There's plenty of those that um, hold reverence for the soil and the ecology and animal husbandry. The disconnect is between that 
guy in the paddock doing what he does, mimicking nature and working with nature as opposed to the conventional way which works against nature. But the disconnect is between him and her story to the consumer. So you and I, we can't go to a butcher or Coles or Woolies or an IGA and get meat or chicken or eggs that comes from region or that we know comes from region. We can ask the butcher where does this come from? And he say, Oh well it's organic or it's free range or it mm. comes from that farm in Newton, you know, wherever central table and but there's there's no accreditation, there's no infrastructure that informs the butcher, the producer or the the retailer, sorry, or the consumer that that has actually been grown and produced by a regen farmer. Mm. So I'm hopeful that all these discussions are growing, the conversation is growing, and at some point there'll be a tipping point, that critical mass where someone will pick up all that conversation and go, okay, well, we need a verification of this. We need a accreditation. And so the end consumer can buy a steak or a fish or a, you know, a pumpkin safe in the knowledge that that producer at the other end is doing all the right things by, by its soil and its you know, an animal husbandry. Yeah. But we just have that disconnect currently. Yeah. And so I don't know whether that tipping point is Monday or next week or six years or ten years' time. I'm hoping it's Monday in terms of book sales, but um, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, it comes I mean, down to transparency, and everyone out there, most people who are evolving into this level of insight and understanding, they just they want to be a conscious consumer. They want to know that they can eat, uh, consume, without having that inherent guilty conscious of I actually have no idea where this has come from, and that's yeah. going to be a huge part of the project that we're working on, particularly when you think about how much protein is harvested from the ocean, um, very, very difficult, just like it is with mm. terrestrial agriculture, mm. to trace back where it came from and what are the environmental and human consequences of that harvesting to get into our lives. So a lot of well, well, I, th I think the, the trouble with that, I mean, you do have uh, MSC and ASC, which is the, the farmed fish version of MSC. So MSC is like a... Marine Stewardship Council that kind of governs so basically fisheries can apply for to be MSC accredited and so they're doing all the right things and trying to maintain sustainable fish stocks but it'd be very hard to police you know once you're out in your boat and that's you're it. out and you know beyond the horizon that's it. who's to say you know you're maintaining best practice and mm -hmm. or things don't slip through the net um, excuse the pun it's, you know, and it's the same for agriculture. You know, a lot of this production happens, you know, out of sight. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, to that point, you know, we, we don't see cattle in feedlots because it's in remote places and it's behind sheds, and um, but which is why those Netflix documentaries are in so eye-opening. Yeah, and so eye-opening. Uh, and necessary, but I do think there's a broader discussion, and I don't think that knee-jerk reaction to go vegan 
for the planet necessarily works for, for all things. Um, but what, what's rang to my mind is that with your new business, in that initial phase, how, how do you collate those startups? Is it you reaching out to them? Because before you're kind of a known brand, yeah. like how, how do you key into those startups that might need funding? Yeah, that's exactly where the organisation that we're setting up is, is at right now. So we're pre-launch, but when we launch, we are essentially trying to make as big a splash as we can initially to say, hey, there's a new kid in town and OIO is here. If you're that crazy innovator or passionate entrepreneur, maybe you're an academic who you know you've got a really good idea but you've got no clue how to commercialise it and turn it into a business, then you're going to find out about us and you're going to be like, I want to know a bit more about that. Mm. And so initially what we're really just doing is building what we're calling our ecosystem. So when you come to ocean-impact.org, you can fill in a form that tells us, well, are you a founder and an entrepreneur? Have you got some ideas? Do you think you're going to be one of the next great disruptors? Or maybe you're a mentor. Maybe you work in these industries already. Maybe you work in fisheries or maybe you work in traditional agriculture and you know that industry is polluting. Maybe you've got information that could help these businesses become fully informed about the problem there is that they're trying to solve. And the third piece is, are you an investor? Are you someone who actually either wants to support OIO in its early stage of growing, or are you like wanting to hear about the first investment opportunities that we have coming along? So we know that so this you, is you, as a brand, as a company, you, you're looking for investors for yourself, but also down the track, you'll be needing investors for the startups under, underneath you sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. And so why we're talking to philanthropists at the moment, and we're calling them venture philanthropists. You know, we yeah. hear a lot about venture capital getting in early and supporting great ideas. Venture philanthropy is saying, hey, you know, give as you do as a philanthropist, because a lot of people out there do give a portion of their, their wealth, but in doing so, you're supporting this ecosystem that then you'll be investing in as a more traditional VC yeah, right. down the line. Because um, there are, you know, they've come across my sort of uh, desk in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, there are philanthropists that only want to be involved in sort of environmental... That's right. ...ecological sort of... Um, businesses, hey? That's right, yeah. So, obviously, in Australia, we're a unique uh, subset of global philanthropy. Like North America, they really are the champions of philanthropy. It's very deeply ingrained in their culture. In Australia, when you actually look at all giving, philanthropic giving, it's between 2 to 6% of that goes to environmental-oriented projects. Probably the recent Australian bushfires would have skewed that a little bit to do that wildlife rehabilitation and restoration work. But yeah, traditionally, a lot of it's going into health, education, disadvantaged, like all very, very important areas. But yeah. the environment has long been that kind of kid on the side sort of going, hey, just remember you actually live in amongst yeah. this gorgeous environment that if, you, if that gets disrupted, then life becomes really hard and it amplifies the impacts elsewhere. So yeah. we're looking for those forward-thinking and proactive individuals who get that. Um, back to other... Maybe um, to that point, like maybe the recent bushfires is tragic... Uh, and horrific as they've been and affected thousands of people, maybe it was a bit of a kick up the ass. I hope so. To a lot of people to go, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to pay more time and attention to what's going on domestically. Yep. Uh, and to, part of that might be like an increase in the funding for 
businesses in that world, you know? Yeah. Someone was making a bit of a sort of crude commentary recently around, well, we're getting good, and this is a really good example of, you know, you want to put the fire out, like something fires up, and the first thing you want to do is go, oh, put it out. But you maybe don't want to think about those huge steps you need to take to prevent the fires from happening in the first place. And so that's probably going to be a challenge and an opportunity now in this post-Australian 2020 bushfires era that we're in now. And the government's going through at the moment. I think the the quiet Australians, those that were sort of fence-sitting at the last election, have actually jumped right over into like, no, we need to do something bold on climate. But then the political infrastructure um, is still really wrought with all these ideological differences, which is going to stop that progress that we've seen for decades of inaction now in Australia. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do with Ocean Impact Organisation is get to that long-term goal of political advocacy and creating a much more renewable and regenerative future, but doing it through business, because business really does seem to be the thing that's been preventing and stifling progress Mm. in our country and around the world for a long time. So to that point, I mean, maybe we can loop back into saying, you know, with yourself and how you've chosen to be entrepreneurial, you've chosen business to meet the goals and expectations of your passions and your purpose. Tell us a little bit about why that? Why not just going and doing a cookie-cutter career? Why have you chosen to be um, so proactive when it comes to business? Yeah, I, I don't know what the, the short answer is there. I guess I've, I've worked for myself for the last 20 years. Um, pretty much as soon as I came to Australia, I kind of, I didn't know what an ABN was, but I, I got one, uh, which kind of meant that I was a sole trader and I've, I've, I've kept that, that number to this day. And Within that time frame, I've started many businesses. I mean, we talked about this briefly last weekend when we caught up. Um, and, you know, a lot of them have failed. But I, I do have this sort of insatiable appetite for, for ideas and working with people, co- collaborating with others to make that idea come to life. I, 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 do, I do have this desire to kind of do good, and that can be through, through the messaging in the books or um, helping people eat the right way through you know, the restaurants or the ready meals. Um, I, th- I think you know, we're only here for like 80 odd years, and I, and I want to die a content and happy man, you know, and I think, I don't think I'll be able to do that if I'm working for H&R Block, you know what I mean, and if I'm an accountant, and I don't mean to put any accountants down, but I, I want, I want to do, I want to put more back into the people around me, the community, you know, as a, as a personal trainer for 15 years in Bondi, I realised pretty early on in that career that I can have an impact to my clients and maybe my community at best. So probably about five or six years into that career, I was like, that's, for whatever reason, that's not good enough for me. I wanted more, like, I wanted to impact. And it probably came to my attention that Michelle Bridges had this online program and she was getting into the homes of hundreds of thousands of, of, of women and families across the country. And I was like, that's fucking amazing. Like, 
she's not dealing with one on one or two on one at a gym in her you know down the park or whatever. She's got her message and her ethos and her philosophy into hundreds, if not millions, of homes. I was like, that's that's um, commendable. Impact. Yeah, that's impact. So I guess for me as a personal trainer, you know, I started in 2005, so maybe 2010, I was like, I want more. Um, and it's not, that might sound that I want more, um, you know, I, I, I want to commercialise it more and make more money, because that, I'll tell you now, that's never happened. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not the remuneration that I'm driven by, it's not the money that I'm driven by, it's that satisfaction and the feel-good that, that um, I'm driven by. And so I'm very lucky in that I've got a, a number of businesses and I, I work with some amazing people. Um, but the thing that underpins it all is that you want to make an impact. And so I want to make an impact with my ready meals in that people can grab a legitimately healthy uh, um, snack on the on, on the go that you know has all those touch points that, that I've mentioned today about you know the food provenance with the, the good place the restaurants I, I want to create a, an environment where people can go again a legitimately healthy food that has all those touch points uh, and, and with the book like I, I want to make an impact I want I want to be part of that thought leading um, movement within Australia and and I and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting that I'm alone in this crusade. Mm. You know, I'm sitting on the lounge with you and you're leading your crusade and it's just just over there. Like, mm. we're all pushing uh, society forward in a really positive way. Um, you just come at it at a slightly different angle than I do. Mm. But we're all moving in a similar direction. And you need people like yourself um, and there's hundreds and thousands of us hopefully um, pushing us forward yeah. and I think that it can only happen when there is that collective um, so I guess uh, I guess I'm, I'm driven by uh, ideation I'm excited by ideation I'm excited to come together with others and and take that idea and mould it and sculpt it and shape it into what could be a legitimate business. And then then becomes the risk, you know, you go live with that business idea. Um, you might be misguided, you might hit the sweet spot. I mean, I haven't hit that sweet spot yet. And so whenever you don't hit that sweet spot, you go, fuck, you know, there's disappointment with that because there's been the preamble, there's been the talk, the discussion, the investment in time and money, and then it hasn't worked. And so you go, well, why didn't that work? Okay, can we tweak it? Can we modify it, edit it a little bit to make a better version? Or do we just scrap the whole thing and start something else up here? Um, but I think that's what um, has been the sort of to encapsulate the last 20 years and you asked about why I'm sort of engaged in various different businesses, it's, it's that need to, to make change, um, the, the want and the desire to help others, um, 
and the creative process. I really enjoy that sort of exploring the idea and the concept and, and working with others. Right. Yeah, I think um, where I'd maybe just like to extend that uh, an extra degree there, I suppose, is for those people that might be tuning in and listening to this and, you know, we're talking a lot about we know that we need to transition so much on so many fronts um, and we need to accelerate that transition. So is there any sort of key learnings or anything that falls out of that that you've learnt or you're picking up on that can help people who may be thinking, gee, I could actually be that, that person who stands for something. Like, in my regard, I've, I've stood for an issue mm. and that's sort of allowed people to galvanise and go, okay, if he stands for that, then I can too. And you obviously stand for so much in, in your regard. So, yeah, what have, you, um, what have you learned or what can we tell those people tuning in to, to either look into themselves, test themselves, ask themselves some questions or... What do you, you, know, what do you no, need I, I to be able to do that? Matt, I think asking yourself questions because whatever you stand for, you need to believe, it needs to be in your DNA. It needs to be intrinsic to you because you're going to stand for that issue or cause or movement each and every day. And if it's not down to your core, then you're going to get discouraged, you're going to get challenged and falter. So it needs to be really... You've got to believe it. You've got to be so impassioned by it. Um, otherwise, you, you're going to sort of waver and, and, and not carry through. Um, and if you have all that, I guess it's a case of... Um, I don't know how you start. Like it might be a case of like talking to your friends and family to begin with. You know, I'm thinking about going down this path. And, and that quite often opens the the discussion and, and those challenges can come as a consequence of, you know, I had dinner with my father-in-law last night and he was challenging me on a business that I'm setting up with, with my partner, Matilda. And it just, to your point, it, it actually galvanises what you're doing more because you can have this sort of blue sky approach to your idea. It's great, it's not going to fail, you know, it's, it's bulletproof. But then you need someone to go, oh, no, actually, have you thought about... And you go, oh, no, I haven't thought about that. Um, so maybe that's a, a, a good recommendation, is that you float those, those ideas with people that might not necessarily just be your biggest supporters 100% of the time. Float it with people that do, that do or will challenge you. Um, because that, that just, you know, think of your idea as this piece of granite that has no shape or form. And you just need to chisel that and sculpt that over months, years, decades until it's, you know, it's what it should be. But all along that process, you've had to be challenged, deflect, argument, and constantly shaping what... And then that thing that you've created is so grounded in your DNA, you can't be deflected from it. And you would have experienced that in take three for the C, you, you, you were and still are so attached to that notion of clearing up the beaches and the oceans and the rivers that you, you couldn't be pushed off it, do you know what I mean? You couldn't be persuaded that it's a bad idea or you should should drop that, you know what I mean? Like It, it was you, it was your identity, right? It still is. Yeah. And safe to say that, you know, transforming that big block of granite into a beautiful sculpture 
you can't really do that without blood, sweat, tears, and a few oh, calluses, right? Yeah, yeah, so sure, yeah. Don't like, expect it to be easy. No, and it's not gonna. You're not gonna. You're not gonna create that beautiful looking bust overnight. Like it, it does take. It does take time. And so, like the formulation of my ethos and my philosophy has been since probably, you know, you could argue all my life. You know, I've been in fitness and, and sport since I was a, a little tacker. Yeah. And then probably in the last, since I became a personal trainer, that was the sort of the catalyst that got me on to, to shaping my piece of granite. Um, and so that's, that's 15 years. Yeah. Like working in the industry. And so now like, you know, I was saying that it's your D, it's in your DNA, it's in your fabric of you to take three to the sea to, to improve the environment. That version of my ethos, I can't be pushed off that. Mm. Not to say that it won't refine or change over time, or be added to, or I'll remove some bits and pieces. It's it's a it's a it's a movable thing. Um, but it, it's so intrinsic to you now that I, I can't be persuaded otherwise um, on the big topics, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I could be persuaded, you know, I'm constantly, you know, absorbing information from podcasts and articles. So if new evidence is so compelling that you go, okay, well, maybe I was, I was wrong there and I'll adopt that new sort of, uh, piece of information that just then becomes part of the bigger overall thing. So it's not to say that once you've created your bust and uh, you've got this beautiful ethos and philosophy that you stand true to, it's not to say that that's immovable. Mm. Um, you can put it in a different room and change the lighting. Yeah, and yeah, get a whole different impact. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, maybe we should um, start thinking about wrapping up our lovely conversation. But yeah, sort of. Um, where to next? I mean, that's been a bit of a subject of today's chat, but maybe we can each reflect on what we're sort of feeling now as we enter this new decade. We're in the roaring 20s. Um, so where are, we, where are we going next? You've obviously got a lovely, lovely family. Um, yeah. Beautiful uh, Well, if you speak to Till, she wants more babies, so um, maybe next could be the bedroom. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, from a personal note, I guess, um, yeah, extending the family at, at some point. Um, we're pretty nestled here in the Northern Beaches. Love it here and just growing that community up here. Uh, professionally, um, I think there's enough on my plate currently to probably not um, add to that. But as I said, I, I do like that process and that part of business. So if ideas come, then I'll explore those for sure. But I think I want to expand on the, the restaurants and get the ready meals up and going uh, until my partner and I are in the midst of getting another business together, which is which sort of um, is the epitome of a lot of what I've been talking about in the last sort of few years, and it's taking a regen product, i.e. beef, to our doorstep, and so we're sort of working out a business idea that facilitates that. So what I was saying before about the consumer not really knowing necessarily if that beef is from a regen supportive farmer. Yep. Um, we're hoping to facilitate that so they know um, 
to the nth degree that that's they're supporting animal welfare and and, and, and soil integrity and animal um, sorry soil integrity and human health. Love it. And what about you, Tim? What's what's next? Yeah, well, I'm obviously staring down this decade of the 2020s, taking a very different approach to creating impact, which has been a big part of the conversation today. And so I can look at that previous decade and say, well, that was a big focus on civil society and developing a non-profit charity to, to, to attain an impact. Um, now it's about business. And so I, I put up my hand and declare that I am a newbie to the, to the world of business and to the point where I've almost been on the other side a little bit cynical of how business can be good for the planet. But I've just come full circle. I turned 40 this year, and it's just pragmatic. We need to have business as unusual, and you know, don't be the person waiting around for someone else to come and save the day. One of my greatest mm. quotes is, we are the people we've been waiting for. So mm. I'm jumping into the, the belly of the beast. I'm not going to call it a, a beast, but the goal is to spend a decade just learning as much as I can about business and shaping um, yeah, business that's that's good, inherently good for people and planet. So I think we're going to have many more yeah, great right. conversations yeah, yeah. Uh, in the coming years, Scott. So yeah, great to talk to you today. Apologies to everyone tuning in about the rain. Yeah, we're currently, currently sitting in a. It's pretty cyclonic, isn't it? It is pretty cyclonic, and the roads are really covered in branches and trees, trees down. But um, hopefully, you've been able to pick up on some some little tidbits from from Scott and Tim uh, as we do a little. Tag team podcast. Good times. Good on you, Tim. Good luck with the new venture. You too, mate.
Okay.